I'm John Torek. And I'm Danny Sullivan, and you're listening to Speaking of Design. Stories and sounds from the world of engineering, architecture, and beyond. We're here to bring to life stories behind some of the industry's most innovative design projects. In more than a decade working with engineers and architects, we've been witness to exciting breakthroughs in the way communities are designed. We want to share our best stories with you. Today, you'll meet a team of volunteers who traveled to Panama and helped the Bajo Cobre community build a bridge that will change their lives. Going into to high school and college, I was a runner. So I spent a lot of time around our farm running on Chip and Steel roads. And I think that's where I learned the most about infrastructure and how important it is. That's Holly Bartle, manager of programs for Bridges to Prosperity. Running up and down the road, you could see what erosion did. You could see what a bridge that was open versus a closed bridge did to a community. That's where the bridge passion started for me. Growing up on a farm, Holly picked up a Midwestern work ethic and a doer's mentality. I'm from a little farm community in southern Indiana. My grandfather was a dairy farmer. My dad farms corn and soybeans, but he's a mechanic. So I spent most of my days either in the barn or in the workshop watching my grandpa, who was a carpenter on the side as well, so watching him build things from sketches or same with my dad. Any idea that they had, it kind of went from paper to reality. I grew up with the mentality that, like, okay, if I plan it out, I can do it. Holly got a civil engineering degree from the University of Southern Indiana, where she also competed in cross-country and track. Her first job out of college was as a bridge engineer at HNTB. Before long, she had an opportunity to take a trip to Kenya, which would change her life. I got involved with an organization called Engineers Without Borders. They provided spring boxes, a water filtration system for this community in Kenya. And they needed a bridge engineer to go with them because um, they had a spring box they'd built the previous year on one side of this river. And the school and the market were on the other side. The bridge they had was washing away. It wasn't safe. Holly reached out to Bridges to Prosperity, an organization that builds footbridges over impassable rivers in isolated communities. He offered Holly ideas for the project in Kenya, and that got her thinking about more than that single bridge. I think my supervisor at my previous job, if you got him on the phone right now, he would say, oh, I wish I'd never let you do that. Um, <laughs> uh, definitely changed me. I wanted more of it. So when the opportunity came up to look at British Prosperity, it went quick, and it was a pretty easy choice, to be honest. Holly had found her true calling with a full-time position at Bridges to Prosperity, or B2P. So we're working with local communities to provide um, a footbridge to eliminate dangerous crossings. And these footbridges provide access to school, to health care, to education. You know, if a school is on the other side of a river, we're providing safe access to that. As Holly noted, a picture is worth a thousand words. And it was one remarkable photograph that launched the idea for B2P. Our, our founder, Ken France, was looking through a National Geographic magazine, and a photo kind of stopped him in his tracks. That photo was of a community in Ethiopia. Before World War II, these communities were being invaded by Mussolini and his armies. So there was this bridge going across the river that provided access, and the community didn't want to be invaded, so they self-destructed the bridge they had. 
after the war, they didn't have a safe way to get across the bridge. The picture that Ken saw was of eight guys from one side of the river and eight guys from the other, and they're holding this rope up. And a gentleman is pulling himself across this opening in this bridge to get across the river. So Ken just thought, what the heck? No way. This is this is unacceptable. And over a pretty quick time frame, he got, you know, his family's friends, his local Rotary Club together, and they went down and built the first Bridges of Prosperity Bridge. That picture has led to volunteers building more than 200 bridges in more than 20 countries. B2P estimates that their bridges have impacted nearly one million people. Most Bridges to Prosperity employees live in the countries where the bridges are built. They work with the local communities to identify needs, evaluate local commitment to build the bridge, and organize work plans. The countries include Bolivia, Haiti, Rwanda, Nicaragua, Uganda, and Panama. About 10 full-time employees in the U.S. work on fundraising, scheduling, and preparing teams of volunteers to travel to the bridge sites. Volunteers make up a critical part of the program. I've always been interested in I've always been interested in the technical side of things and growing up in school I was good at math and science. That's Darren Hobbs, a bridge engineer who works in HDR's Denver office. I think bridges are really cool. So one experience I can kind of point to is back in eleventh grade where we did a balsa wood bridge competition and I think we built a bridge that was like five grams and it held up almost eighty pounds which just blew my mind. And ever since then, I've been interested in engineering and especially structural engineering. The type of technical problem solving that's involved, I really enjoy that. In graduate school, Darren took a class on cable-supported pedestrian bridge design taught by Avery Bang. She's the CEO of Bridges to Prosperity, and her class proved to be an eye-opening experience for Darren. I've stayed involved with Bridges to Prosperity since being a student, just recognizing that I'm pretty lucky to have the opportunities that I've had and to live in a developed country and have access to education. And a lot of that's due to my parents and the community around me. It's just due to luck. And so there's a lot of people out there that just aren't as lucky based on the situation that they're born into. It's just kind of a cool thing for people, I guess, to be able to help out in those ways. Darren volunteered to be part of a student team taking on a B2P project and he discovered a passion for the work. Honestly, at first I was like, wow, this is cool. I can go travel, I can go design and build a bridge. It sounds really fun. And then slowly over time, that's kind of evolved as I've gone on these trips and I've experienced what it means to live in these communities. In 2017, Darren was among 10 volunteers from HDR and PCL Construction that traveled to Bajo Cobre, Panama for a Bridges to Prosperity project. He was joined by Patrick Malone, Director of Renewable Energy at PCL in Denver. Patrick didn't set out to build bridges when he began his career at PCL. I've been with uh, PCL for 29 years now. 28 of those were building complex bridges around the country. And the funny story there is, is I really sort of stumbled into it. I originally came out in 1988, and times were tough. I approached my company, PCL, told them I wanted to build commercial buildings in the mountains or around the Denver area. They said they had nothing. Two weeks later, they called me back and said, how about bridges in Florida? And I said, close enough. And uh, honestly made the transition over into infrastructure and really enjoyed a long career in that field. The makeup of Bridges to Prosperity teams vary. In this case, HDR and PCL were part of the industry partner program. The two companies donated funds to purchase construction materials and supplied volunteers with a background in engineering and construction. Prior to the trip, Darren said the team had weekly calls with Holly to help prepare the team for life in Bajo Cobre. 
I guess some of the things are, you know, basic health and safety. We're out there camping. We need to know, are there dangerous animals? What are they? Are they reptiles? Are they snakes? Are they spiders? What are our living facilities like? Are we sleeping in tents? Do we have a school or a community structure to sleep in? Holly said the conditions of each bridge site vary. Sometimes you have electricity, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have running water, sometimes you don't. So so this team, they had none of the luxuries. They were intense, no electricity, and faced a a significant amount of rain and mud. Um, so again, sometimes you have rain, sometimes you don't. Then, on top of the living conditions, you have the construction of the bridge to plan. What tools you'll need, what components you'll be building, and walking through the construction plan. Patrick said safety was a frequent topic. You have a complex makeup of people who have a lot of field experience and people who've never been in the field. You're combining with a community that has a really no understanding of current safety practices. You're trying to put safety boots on people who haven't had shoes on in their life. And you're trying to do this in an environment which is very different from a normal construction project. And there were safety considerations beyond construction. Knowing that, for instance, that there are times when, just like the community, you can't access the outside. You can't get people to health care if something were to occur and making sure that you have a game plan of how you would evacuate people or get them the medical treatment if that were to occur. With everyone prepared to travel, it was time to fly to Panama including Jose Rodriguez, a construction services manager at HDR. I'm a designer by background, and I've migrated into construction services because of the reward of seeing design come to fruition. Jose was drawn to B2P by the opportunity to apply his expertise in a way that would impact people so directly. It piqued my interest, honestly, to be able to go into a very remote third world country where there's no electricity and to be able to build something on a massive scale to be able to give back to communities in that fashion. We're often too tied up in building massive interchanges and improving levels of service for roadways that we have here in America, but to be able to just provide a point of transportation across a river that didn't exist before. It was just enlightening to me. However, Jose's journey to Bajo Cobre was like a sequel to the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Or in this case, planes, chivas, and horses. So one of the challenges is getting all these different people flying in from where, everywhere to come into the same spot. We're talking about a spot that's a GPS spot on a map or a set of coordinates, and it's not like you can just give them directions and Siri will take you there. All the volunteers were to have flown into Panama City and climb aboard the three rented 4x4 truck that we were to take. From there, the team would travel five and a half hours by road. Then when you get to a location where the pavement ends, you still, beyond that point, have about three miles of when you enter into the rainforest, a semi-graded roadway to provide materials and get materials as close to the build site as possible. Jose's trip began uneventfully flying from Dallas to Fort Lauderdale. But in Fort Lauderdale, mechanical problems delayed his flight to Panama City for an hour. That turned into two hours, and eventually into an entire day. As Patrick explained, Jose had packed to camp for two weeks, so he was prepared to live in the airport, an experience which Jose compared to Tom Hanks' character in the movie The Terminal. 
So the first pictures we saw of him was sleeping on the airport floor with his camping gear that he had set up and staying the night in the airport. Because nobody knew when Jose would arrive, and the construction schedule was packed into a short time frame, the team decided to proceed to Bajo Cobre. All the team members would load up in their 4x4s as had planned and just go to the build site and start bridge construction without me. And it was then up to me to get to the build site whenever, as early as I could, however I could, by my own means. The next day he flew in and he, of course, missed our connection point And that led him to now being on his own and having to catch a small bus the following day. When I arrived at Panama City, I was a day late. As I indicated, the team had already left without me. So I had learned from our earlier discussions that Panama really had a very good bus system. So I, I quickly got onto a equivalent of a Greyhound bus, if you will. The bus got him as far as the nearest city, where he downsized his mode of transportation. And from there on, it was a combination of smaller, much smaller buses, which they call the Chivas. And because the locals used these extensively, they became very crowded but I had to use a combination of three different chivas and a couple different taxis to finally get to the point where the pavement ended. From there, Jose didn't know how far he would have to walk, taking the graded roadway into the rainforest. And he still had his luggage. Because I was carrying four bags at the time with all my gear and tent and that I needed to take in. And I couldn't carry all four bags and walk with them because they were too heavy and too bulky. So at best, I could only carry two bags at a time and then have to uh, drop those off and then walk back and pick up the other two bags. Jose was documenting the journey and provided a first-hand account from Bajo Cobre as he found an alternate mode of transportation. So on my last leg of my trip, I got kind of stranded. So I'm uh, catching up with the guys at the build site and I don't have means of transportation until late evening, but I did find an alternate route this is Juan and his horse. I asked him what his horse's name was, and he just tells me horse in Spanish. Fortunately for Jose, Juan not only provided transportation, he also provided a reliable replacement for Siri. So I asked Juan about if he knew about the bridge that was being built in the area, and luckily for me, he did. He said it's still a considerable ways in, and he looked at me as he said that with the bags, and. So we quickly made a deal that I, I would uh, pay him if he could take me and my bags by horseback into the campsite. Meanwhile, Patrick and the rest of the team were awaiting Jose's arrival. So my wife and I jumped in the SUV and drove up to the site and we waited and waited and waited and never he never showed so after about an hour or so we turned around and went back. And Jose, Juan, and his horse were headed into the rainforest. On our way in, so I'd already loaded up the horse with my bags, and we were walking in. And keep in mind, this is into the rainforest. Even on horseback, having to cross streams and go up some pretty steep grades, and it was quite muddy. And really, there's no one in sight. Patrick and his wife got back to camp and sent another group out to look for Jose. Well, while the other vehicle was driving up to go get them, they happened to pass a few individuals that were riding on a horse together. And the people on the horse waved, and the people on the SUV waved back, and they kept going up to the rendezvous point. So I knew immediately it was one of the volunteers that was coming to pick me up or to go out and look for me. Keep in mind, none of the volunteers had met in person before they arrived in Panama. So I, I made my way over to talk to the driver. And... Uh, <laughs> 
when they waved at him, they thought he was just a, a one of the local community members, and it had been the uh, missing uh, individuals. When he first passed me up, I thought he recognized that I was the person he was going to, to pick up, and that he would go and make a turnaround and come back, and then we'd load up the truck. But when he kept on going and going, and then he went out of sight, it quickly dawned on me that he had mistaken me for a native, and well, what, what can you do? But just laugh at it and keep going. Well, it was quite a quite a circus, I guess is the best way to put it, um, that really illustrated the uh, logistical challenges of this job. So Jose and Juan walked the entire distance to camp, with the gear arriving on horseback. But getting mistaken for a local gave Jose something to talk about for the rest of the trip. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. I, and I think we, we, we gave him a hard time the rest of the two weeks we were there, but it was certainly understandable. The effort it took to reach Bajo Cobre demonstrates just how remote the village is. For locals, travel challenges were part of daily life, as Patrick explained. The Bajo Cobre Bridge was uh, one that was determined by Bridges to Prosperity as probably one of the most remote projects that they had come across and probably one of the biggest need projects that were out there. The community had typically what would be normally a two-hour commute, which included walking through the river, which could increase to anywhere up to eight hours to 12 hours when the waters were high and they had to use alternative access. More than 100 people live in the community, and about 100 more live in nearby Gavilan. So the need for the bridge extended beyond the immediate village. As part of his responsibilities, Jose conducted interviews on site, serving as a translator with the local community. One of the families that really struck a chord with me was the family that lived closest to the bridge site, actually. It's a husband and wife, Gregorio and Apolina Valdez. They live just overseeing the bridge construction site. And in my interview with them, he so eloquently expressed what life was like before the bridge well, thanks to God and to all of you from abroad and the group coming from the United States so far here to solve this problem of the river. The river is so dangerous and difficult to cross for the children and sometimes even for us older folks. At times, people get sick. At any time of the night, we would have to go out with the sick in a hammock crossing the river. Sometimes we had to go in a group and lift them up on a pole with a hammock above our heads so that they would not get wet. And the water was up to our necks. We had to be able to cross and take them out to where a vehicle goes by to take them to the hospital to save their life. Also, this happens a lot, that someone is bitten by a snake. They, too, have had to be taken out at any hour of the night. In fact, Gregorio told Jose the need for the bridge struck particularly close to home. He and his family had experienced a loss approximately four years ago of a drowning death of uh, an individual that just was washed away when the individual was crossing the river. The uh, flash flood uh, came down. They actually warned us of that when we were on site that don't be misled by the height of the water when you start walking, because if it's raining upstream, the flash flood could cause the river to rise rather quickly in very strong currents. Well, it just happened that the currents uh, washed this individual away, 
and uh, yeah, he was lost. The volunteers witnessed the rapidly changing water levels firsthand. Just in the time period we were there, it went from as low as from your knees to over my head, which I'm five foot eight. But not only the depth was of concern, but the current. The water reminded me of like white water rapid because it was so turbulent. So it didn't take very much more really above even the waist to, to take someone. What the community lacked in technology, they made up for with their own innovative safety measures. And interestingly enough, the kid that crossed the river, each of them had a mark on the bank of the river that their parents had helped them identify with it. When the water was to that level, they were not to cross the river if it was that level or higher and they couldn't see their mark anymore. So at times, on this particular day that I interviewed three children, two of them were able to cross, but the shortest one was not until the water subsided. It's not hard to imagine the effect that high water levels had on education. The school wouldn't be attended by half the kids that day. It's unfortunate because that happened, I would think, more days than not during the rainy season. Because even the two weeks that we were there, it was at such a level that I don't know that I would send my kids across. Devin Cannell, one of Bridges to Prosperity's program managers in Panama, said conditions like that made the Bajo Cobre project a high priority. Jose interviewed Devin during the trip. There are projects that have an extreme need for short amounts of time out of the year, and projects that have a little bit of need for 12 months out of the year, and there's everything in between. It kind of depends on the, the river, the country, the landscape around the, the specific river and bridge. Now this is, is definitely one of the higher need projects I've done here in Panama and I've seen here in Panama. Devin said that was because it affected the community for so much of the year. It is May right now. It's only two weeks into the rainy season. And in the last two weeks, we've seen the river raise, I'd say, probably three feet in a few hours and go back down overnight. And that's the first two weeks of rainy season. So there's eight more months of this, which means this is, is unique in a sense where really eight months out of the year, it's very difficult to cross. Like Holly, Devin's first job out of college was as a project engineer in Oregon. His passion to make a difference in communities like Bajo Cobre inspired him to shift his career path as well. Imagine whether that's your grandma that's sick, your mom that's sick, your wife that's sick, your husband that's sick, or your kids trying to cross the river to go to school every single day. Projects like these that show that extreme impact and how much of a change. One donation, a few weeks of time, going to change his community's future for decades to come. When B2P decides to build a bridge, people like Devin do the legwork for the project. Before volunteers can build the final bridge, Bridges to Prosperity evaluates the need, looks for opportunities to partner with local municipalities, and gauges local enthusiasm. So we scheduled a community meeting, actually, and Maria, our program engineer, came down a few weeks later. The river was even higher for the community meeting, and we had about... 70, 80 community members standing across the river that came down for the meeting while Maria stood on this side and, and uh, yelled uh, our, our typical first meeting spiel to them. And from then on, it was, it was really obvious that not only the need was here, but also that the community was very invested in this project. Then program managers like Devin work with the local governments to plan the project. Members of the community, they partner on the first steps, like excavating a site for construction or building foundations for a bridge. On any project, the community involvement is difficult because we're asking a community to come out, press pause on their life for three or four months, and get volunteers out here 
8, 10, 20 volunteers out here every day for three months working on this bridge. Which isn't easy when the community depends on its residents to do their day jobs. The field behind us is a yucca field. There's a field across the way that's rice, and the community actually shares in farming in that. You know, a lot of that harvesting's in the summer, so they have to work around that schedule to both do the farming and at the same time build this bridge. But there was no shortage of willing participants in Bahu Cobre, ranging in age from 8 years old to 73. And this community, hands down, has been one of the best showings I've ever seen. One day, they had a 70-person group work party. They did work parties about two days a week, and the rest of the week, they'd have eight or ten people out there. In reality, that's what made this bridge possible. As we're seeing right now, if this bridge was built a month later, we maybe wouldn't have been able to build it. One thing, the road's getting destroyed, we wouldn't have been able to make it in. Another thing, the river's about becoming impossible to swim across, unless you're a very strong swimmer. The locals worked through 12-hour days, pouring six cubic meters of concrete by hand in order to finish the bridge foundations before the American volunteers arrived. Jose interviewed two volunteers from Gavilan, Compactio Camano Valdez and Emacio Valdez, about the community effort. Up to 80 people worked here, including the children that could help. Everyone worked. The youngest was around eight or nine years old. The young ones could only carry a small amount of material. The oldest were 60 to 70 years old. I am 72 years old, and I am here. After Jose's adventurous arrival, the entire team received an unpleasant welcome from Mother Nature. Our whole camp was basically torn apart by the first storm that we had, and that was our very first day, our very first full day on site. We've got basically swimming pools and the tents. The whole team's running around trying to rebuild the tarp structure, which is it's kind of a makeshift shelter with some posts uh, driven into the ground and wire and bamboo holding it all together with tarps over the top, and they're all torn up by the wind. Darren Hobbs, the bridge engineer from Denver, who's been on previous bridge-building trips, said the team wasn't expecting a four-star hotel. They built us a shelter. It was just built out of bamboo and, and trees and logs, basically kind of like a large lean-to with a tarp over the top. And then underneath that, we set up all our tents. So we're just basically just like camping. We've got tents, sleeping pads, sleeping bags. Out there, it's so hot, you just really need a sheet. And each person, we had enough space so each person could have their own tent. Needless to say, there wasn't air conditioning. But Jose said everyone knew exactly what they signed up for. Temperatures during the day were upper 90s. Temperatures at night were upper 70s, so that's typically much warmer than what we even are accustomed to having temperatures for sleeping. So it was uncomfortable at times because of the humidity, but understanding what we needed, what we were there to do, we needed to have it finished one way or the other. Although there wasn't indoor plumbing, Darren said the community built bathroom facilities for the volunteers. We had a basically a pit latrine, which is pretty nice um, compared to some other situations I've been in in the past. So just a hole in the ground for an outhouse and three walls and a small roof above for when it's raining. And then this was, I mean, this was the most luxurious thing. Is we, we had prepared the team to shower in the river, but the community had ran a pipe to set up a little shower for us. So they had drove a piece of rebar in the ground and put a shower head on the top of that. And they had water coming in from a, a source up high. And so it had plenty of pressure. That was a portable concrete pad. And that was fantastic. Patrick Malone joked that he may have been the one that prompted the community to roll out the red carpet when it came to the bathrooms. I think they actually did it just for my life. 
I pushed a couple <laughs> times to make sure she had some accommodations. I didn't want to hear it every single night. So I think in some ways they really put some accommodations on. And I'd say that even just the latrine that they built was above and beyond. I mean, what you were saying was a hole. It was actually, you know, they even uh, put a concrete base and a toilet lid on it. I was just blown away at what they had done. What did it sound like to sleep in camp? Darren recorded his first night in Bajo Cobre. So I'm out here to first night after a full day of work and uh, just wanted to give you guys a sample of what it sounds like out here in the jungle in Bajo Cobre. all kind of wake up around sunrise, say 5.30, 6 a.m., and at the campsite we'd eat breakfast, just kind of casual talk amongst ourselves. The community would usually have coffee for us too, and then we would walk down the site, and if we had uh, water jugs, we'd probably bring two trucks down. The walk is probably 15 minutes to get from the field that we were camping in down to the bridge site. Darren said the trek to the bridge site wasn't much easier for the people who were driving trucks. We got these rental trucks stuck probably <laughs> 10 times coming in and out of this, this newly cut dirt road. It was the most, most intense off-roading I've ever done. And, you know, we had four-wheel drive vehicles, decent clearance, and we were just getting these trucks stuck almost every single time we'd come in and out of this road. From there, the work would begin with the professional engineering and construction volunteers guiding community members through the tasks for the day. More experienced team members in construction are teaching other team members and community members about different construction activities, you know, building scaffolding, tension and cable, sending rebar, cutting deck planks, cutting cross beams. Darren said the team planned ahead to overcome any sort of communication barrier. One thing that we prepared our team to do is be able to use nonverbals. So there's a lot you can get across with just nonverbal communication. You can get to know somebody on a different level without even being able to speak the same language, which is pretty neat. The team also took a Spanish course through Red Angle, a company that Patrick said focuses on construction site language skills. Really focused on me getting a hammer from someone more than ordering ham and eggs in the morning. I mean, it was that focus on construction that I think made it so different from other language courses that I've had in the past. And, and it really did help me on a lot of the barriers or to communicate with others more so than I had had in the past. Jose also served as a translator and emphasized the need for clear communication with local volunteers. After all, the last thing that you'd want to see is a serious injury during the build. We're going into a third world country in a community where probably half of them don't even wear shoes to try to explain the importance of why we have to wear steel toe boots and eye protection. The design called for a 63-meter structure across the Rio Cobre River, which Patrick described in detail. The bridge towers are large steel towers that are shipped in piece by piece and, interesting enough, carried over by the community. While they could, they, they had a team that carried it across the river. And frankly, we only had to carry it 20 feet, but they carried it a very long ways, and we have no idea how because it was amazing that they ever got across that river. Jose interviewed Santiago Zuleta, an assistant project manager with PCL, while they sat atop one bridge abutment above the tree canopy. 
This specific suspension bridge has four main cables, the suspension cables. They're uh, an inch and uh, an eighth in diameter, and they weight like a ton. <laughs> we got 30 guys pulling on the cable so we can get them. So first we got to get them across the river, then we got a slack, and we pull them up the scaffold and around the top of the towers, and then anchor them, which is what those guys are doing now. It makes you appreciate a crane. <laughs> Bridges to Prosperity has standard designs for each bridge type, with an average cost of $60,000. B2P also works to develop business relationships and find innovative ways to lower material costs. These steel cables are actually donated by various ports around the country and then shipped down in connex boxes. And so I think it's a very clever way of not just getting good value, but also that they're recycled on the project. The last component is the bridge surface. And the wood planking goes down on top of the cross beams that are fabricated. I hate to say it, that's as simple as this. A simple design, perhaps, when compared to a multi-million dollar urban interchange. But there was nothing simple about the work. It is a hand-built bridge. There are no cranes. There is no forklift. There is nothing. It is all manual work. Because we don't have access to those large types of equipment, we have to design these bridges in a way that allows us to build them completely by hand with, with some power tools for screws and things like that. For example, the timber that we had was cut from a tree just a couple hundred feet from the bridge site. The team of all ages worked tirelessly. And Gregorio, the older man who spoke of the dangers of the river, made an impression on Darren with his work ethic. Yeah, he was there every single day working. He was a guy who everybody in the community listened to and really respected. When he spoke, uh, people stopped talking and they, they listened to him. You know, he kind of led through example. He's working every single day. And he's an older guy. He's not somebody who's a 20-something like me. So that, that really showed us something. As Jose reminded us, it wasn't just the men doing the work. Women from the village, many who were very small in stature, did just as much labor. But what was more incredible was how much work the women actually did, and I'm talking about physical work. They had a considerable role in helping with the build of the bridge, and to see women of that size do as much hard work as they did was breathtaking. One example, Marcela Valdez Camamo, a resident of nearby Gavilan, who Jose interviewed. In order to get goods to her store, she had to use a distant crossing of the river that required a substantial trek up the mountain, which gave Marcella plenty of motivation to haul building materials to the bridge site. Yes, we have been helping with the cooking and helping the cross material that is needed on either side of the river. We first began with carrying rocks across. We carried the rock over from one side of the river to the other on our back. We would fill a bag and carry it over, and then we would help on either side. We made many trips, and even if we had other things to do in our homes, we were here. This is our contribution that we provided even if our bodies ate, we were here. Each morning, the team of locals and American volunteers would work throughout the morning until it was time for a midday break. Darren said the schedule was pretty predictable, right down to the weather. And then we have lunch, get back to work, and usually it would rain every single day around 2 to 3 p.m. And the locals, they just knew. They just kind of look at one part of the sky and the locals would say, oh, it's gonna, the rain's going to come in 15 minutes. And sure enough, 15 minutes, it was just pouring rain. 
Jose captured that moment during the first week of the build. Uh, first week of the build, and it's about lunch hour now, well, maybe 1 p.m. As you can see behind me, the clouds are rolling in, and this is like a daily occurrence that we have on our build. At about 3 p.m., the clouds roll in, and it unleashes. I think uh, Monday, we probably, I think we were estimating about three inches of rain fell on Monday, and then probably another inch or two on Tuesday. Today, it looks just like repeat of the same. It looks like clouds are darkening here about 2, 3 p.m. We get a, a good rainfall, and then uh, it clears up, and it suspends work in the afternoon, and it's nice and refreshing. I imagine right now the temperature's probably uh, mid-90s with about the same uh, humidity, about 95, maybe 98% humidity. It's just, it's uh, it's okay if you're not doing anything, but as you know, we're we're doing a build, so it's a lot of effort, a lot of work. And you just got to pace yourself and take it easy. We've had a lot of folks getting a little bit dizzy, so we got to take them time out, get them water and refresh them, and we get going again. And remember how camp was flooded on the first day? Patrick said that added a daily task during the afternoon showers. We had rains every single day, and at least two to three people would have to leave the job site, go over to the campsite, and they had a duty of just making sure that uh, the camp held together and they didn't flood out on a daily basis. And after some more afternoon work? It was usually raining. We would go back, back up to site and have dinner and the road hang out and eventually kind of go to sleep pretty early when the sun gets down. We're really living by the sun. When the sun goes down, you get tired real quick. And then when the sun comes up, it starts to get hot and you wake up early in the morning. For the women of Bajo Cobre, the day began even earlier, before sunrise. Typically, the women of the family would come and start a fire in the morning right around 5 a.m. and start cooking breakfast for us. We had bought all the food in Panama City and brought it out there in the trucks that were rented, and they took care of cooking all the food for us. When it came to the volunteers, Patrick said the community literally went the extra mile. When we talk about a community member, we're not talking someone that walked a block and was there at 6 a.m. making our coffee for us. Some of these ladies were traveling, including sometimes carrying pots and food and whatever, but they would travel two, two and a half hours. And the menu consisted of? <laughs> Chicken and rice. <laughs> sometimes. Rice and beans. Rice and lentils. <laughs> uh, yeah. The first day, the, the ladies prepared us chicken bean and rice and that's what we had the second day and third day as well and this was for lunch and dinner keep in mind in preparing we want to make sure that the food supplies that we bring are appropriate for that region and the cooking style that they have we don't want to bring them our favorite meals that we like cooked in the united states that's not what they're used to so we're we wanted to get the best food you got to bring the cooks what they know how to cook well in this community that was mostly chicken beans rice and lentils not that the menu left anyone any less impressed thanks to the tireless work of the community to welcome the bridge team. And, of course, I remember watching one of them leave. She left probably about 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. It was getting dark. And we said how far she got to go, and they said, well, she's got a two-and-a-half-hour walk. So she's going to walk in the dark all the way up this slope that was probably 15, 20 degrees. I mean, it was super steep in the rain, and she had done that all just to come out as part of her giving to the community for this bridge structure. Jose talked to Tia Nila one of the ladies who cooked dinner for the group. I love to cook. When you cook and do things with love, everything works out well. You all will sleep well tonight. Jose recalled one of his favorite moments of cultural exchange over breakfast. One of my 
fondest memories was of that of the scrambled eggs. For whatever reason, when they cook their eggs in the morning, it's a fried egg, and it's cooked one at a time. And they typically give you that with a tortilla. And their tortillas are slightly different than what we're used to, but nonetheless, it's a one fried egg and a tortilla, and that's your breakfast. After several days of eating the same meal, Jose was ready to put on his chef's hat. We had lots of eggs and lots of vegetables, so we thought, why don't we cook us up an omelet? So the next morning, I woke up and assisted the ladies by peeling potatoes, and uh, that particular day, we would cook an omelet, so I started breaking eggs into a bowl. I was good with the first one, but by the time I went to crack the second and the third egg in the same bowl, the lady came over and and asked me what I was doing, And, and as I explained, I was preparing scrambled eggs. It dawned on me that they, for whatever reason, always looked at cooking an egg individually, that mixing them, you don't have the the yellow of the yolk or the white of the egg. It's a combination of both, and uh, it, it didn't feel right or seem right to them. And Jose waited to see how the woman reacted. Had he overstepped his bounds? I gave them a taste of the omelet. It was enlightening to me to see their facial expression when they ate the eggs because, yeah, scrambled eggs taste a bit different than eggs cooked otherwise. But with the vegetables, you could tell they really liked it. And uh, the, the same ladies would ask again for the omelet when they, it was their turn to cook the next time. You could tell we just exchanged some cultural differences that, that were educational for both sides, right? As the work came to an end, the community planned a grand meal to celebrate the bridge opening. Patrick said that required an even earlier morning for the cooks. Well, many of them had to start cooking by 1 o'clock in the morning to make this meal. For them to have the meal for the community and ready to go, they had to start cooking at 1 o'clock in the morning. So they started walking about 11 o'clock in the evening to be able to get there by 1. And I remember happened to step out of my tent and looked up on the hill. And here was this light miles away. And I could see it moving around. And it was one of the community members making their way at 1 o'clock in the morning, heading down the slope to try to get out to the project site so she could do her part. The community celebrated by dedicating the bridge, posing for pictures, singing and dancing, and sharing a big meal. One moment that stood out to Darren was seeing Gregorio, the older man who lost a family member in the river, crossing the finished bridge. The first day of the bridge is complete, and we're just kind of finishing up the fencing, doing some things here and there. It's safe to walk over without fall protection. And Gregorio needed to just bring a huge bundle of firewood on his shoulder across the river. And that was the first time he had crossed the bridge. And he is just so stoked. He was just hooting and hollering, and he was so excited. The team said their goodbyes, packed up camp, and prepared to travel home. It had been an exhausting but satisfying trip. And everyone had survived without any sort of serious health scares in the jungle. Going into rainforest, we kind of had talked about what to expect as far as critters and what have you. And throughout the two weeks, we had come across other creatures, namely a tarantula campsite. Frogs that we were told also were poisonous. We had seen some smaller snakes Never even realized what kind they were, if they were venomous or not. But everything was going well as far as that front until the day we were departing. The visitors loaded three 4x4 trucks. And on the way out, they got stuck in the mud once again. In the midst of pushing the vehicles out and, and trying to get them out, I guess we had stirred up a hornet's nest nearby, which at the time we weren't aware of. I had gotten bit by what I thought was a bird at the time because it was so darn big and I swatted at it and I got to see what it was that had bit me because almost immediately as soon as I looked at it 
I, I felt the pain. And it turned out it was a tarantula hawk wasp. That's right. Jose had encountered an insect infamous enough to be featured on the Brave Wilderness Channel's Breaking Trail program. Now they say that the sting of the tarantula hawk is number two on the insect sting pain index. It's like being stunned with a taser, and they say it puts you into a state of paralysis for up to five minutes where all you can do is scream. This is the most nervous I've ever been to take a sting or a bite from anything. My hand is shaking. Are you guys all ready? Oh yeah, I'm ready if you're ready. I'm ready, I'm ready. Okay. Here we go. I'm Coyote Peterson, and I'm about to enter the sting zone with the tarantula hawk. Let's go for it. One, two, here we go, three. These are um, big, oversized, grown bees, if you will, probably the size of maybe three fingers of your palm, of your hand, that these hawk wasps actually prey on tarantulas, hence the name tarantula hawk wasp. The female tarantula hawk wasp stings and paralyzes the tarantula, then lays an egg in the, uh, in the abdomen of the tarantula. Jose didn't know what exactly had stung him in the moment, but his ear was quickly swelling, and the stinger he removed was massive. Jose told one other volunteer, but he knew the closest help would be in Santiago, where the group was headed, and that was an hour and a half away. Although the tarantula hawk wasp is not venomous to humans and doesn't require medical attention, Jose did apply the training he had before the trip, just in case it was. And I was telling myself just to keep calm and don't excite the blood pressure. And if it was venomous, that transported throughout the body. So I, I just told myself I wouldn't alert the rest of the volunteers of my concerns until we got to the city anyway, because we were already heading in. And on the trip, I noticed my neck starting to really hurt. I had gotten bit in my ear and the pain was migrating down to my neck, which was making me uh, very concerned. So Jose tried to remain calm as the team, mostly unaware of its predicament, drove to Santiago. And the next thing you knew, I had woken up because I guess through the pain or through the exhaustion of having worked on the bridge for two weeks, I had gone to sleep. And I don't know if that, the bite of that uh, tarantula hawk wasp put me out or not, but I remember coming to as we drove into uh, Santiago. And aside from a stiff neck, most of the pain has had subsided by then. So we uh, left it at that, but it was quite the uh, experience. Jose felt lucky it was as short-lived as it was but the encounter was one he won't soon forget. Professionals in that industry of insects tell you that that bite of a tarantula hawk wasp is one of the most painful bites of all insects. I truly believe that to be the case because it was, it was a pain that felt like being electrocuted, honestly. But even more memorable for Jose than the tarantula hawk wasp was the people of Bajo Cobre. Each home I went into to conduct interviews. Every home provided me something to show appreciation and welcome me, whether it was eggs from a chicken that had just laid the morning of or mangoes that they had picked from their favorite tree. They were always giving, even though they didn't have much to give, they always gave me something prior to me departing and thanked me for coming to visit them. They were very loving people. Holly Bartle from Bridges to Prosperity said, 
That's the experience most volunteers have. It's really the faces and the people you meet. That, that's that's true of me today. You know, every bridge you go to, every bridge or site, you know, our team goes to um, that I get to go down to. Those faces never leave you. You always meet someone. You always hear some story. You always make a connection that that keeps you wanting to do this. The bridge in Bajo Cobre will provide safe access to school and healthcare. And Patrick said it could be even more transformative for the community. Actually, it opened their minds. These guys were talking about it could change what they farm, what they ranch, how they live, just how they make a living. Having a market now, not just it's difficult to get the market, but they often didn't do things because the fact they could only do it 30% of the year or easily. So I think they are just on the cutting edge of being able to understand what this really means to them and what world it's opened up to them. What the volunteers accomplished means the world to villagers like Gregorio. So now with the bridge, I think that we will live a different life compared to how we lived previously. And I am extremely thankful to you all, the group in the United States, a thousand, thousand, thousand times for your grand work and your love that you have for our community. PCL Construction and HDR donated funds to help build the bridge, but the employees making the trip used their personal PTO and paid for the majority of their travel expenses. And although they had a background in bridge building, Darren and Holly said that's not a requirement to get involved with B2P. You don't need to have an engineering or construction background as long as there are certain team members who have that background and are willing to manage and supervise and share their skills. Outside of having a really big heart, I don't think that any one person is the same. That's definitely the similar quality. It's just some form of passion for working with the community. Jose said volunteering for Bridges to Prosperity is something you won't regret. But on a personal level, I will tell you that if you've ever done any type of volunteer work, whether it be Hearts for Hammers or Habitat for Humanity or even just helping on a local food drive, I can tell you, because having been there and experienced many of those type of events myself, that this type of humanitarian effort is on a whole different level. It would be the most rewarding thing I can guarantee that you will ever have done in your life. Special thanks to Jose Rodriguez for interviewing the residents of Bajo Cobre and the volunteers on site in Panama. We'd also like to thank Coyote Peterson and Brave Wilderness Channel for their clip of Breaking Trail. To volunteer, make a donation, or learn more about Bridges to Prosperity, visit bridgestoprosperity.org. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate us or leave feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on this podcast, visit hdrinc.com backslash speakingofdesign. You'll find links to pictures, articles, and more information about this project.